and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we're going to be doing something a little different. Instead of talking about one big topic like we usually do, we're instead going to be discussing several little ones, elements of game design that are too small to be their own episodes. Also, we don't have a guest today, so Jared and I will be using this intimate alone time to talk about the state of the show. We'll talk about how we started Game Breaking Feature, our favorite parts of making it, and maybe give you a little sneak peek into our process. To help me ruin the magic of podcasting as a man who carries a literal soapbox with him everywhere he goes, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? My fellow Americans, today we bring you what I can only describe as speed dating for game podcasting. Steven, how are you? <laughs> oh, I'm alive, barely. I'm... I'm going to apologize up front if I sound a little, uh, if I sound a little different or uh, a little tired. I have been battling a cold. We just put uh, Griffin into daycare, and uh, he seems to be doing just fine. But his mother and I have—he's oh, really he's going and touching all those other little brunt kids and bringing stuff home. Yeah, it's rough. So I, I, I've definitely got my radio voice on today. Sounds sexy. I'm into it. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I don't know how sexy the act of like actually dying a little bit is but i <laughs> i appreciate the compliment you make it sound good <laughs> dude we're doing a little uh different episode today we don't have a guest so we're gonna take some time out of this episode and share some of our our thoughts about the show yeah i figure episode 14 uh, is as good as any to uh do a little <laughs> bottle episode of our own here and uh just kind of run through some things that we've been thinking about stuff that doesn't necessarily warrant an entire podcast so um why don't we just jump into it yeah, man, let's jump into it. So the first uh, video game mechanic we're going to be talking about is invisible barriers. Um, Jared, we we typically go into a little bit of history. We're not going to do a super deep dive like we normally do, but why don't you give us a little bit of history about invisible barriers in video games? Yeah, so the many um, early arcade games that I could think of you know stuff like Pac-Man um, and what else? What else was there? Galaga. Galaga. You so I played Galaga yesterday actually, and I swore that you could go to the edge of the screen and come back on the other side like Pac-Man, but you cannot. But one of the earliest arcade games was uh, Galaxian in 1979. Well, that's that's actually that's what Galaxian was sort of the precursor to Galaga. Okay, Galaga was in the 80s sometimes, and Galaxia was 79. Galaxian, sorry. Galaxian, Again, and then they followed it up with Galaga. Were they related? Like, were they some... I believe they were directly related. It's a little bit before my time, and I didn't go too deep into the research to find out. But I, yeah, I think Galaga was uh, essentially like a sequel to Galaxian. So yeah, I mean, that that was probably one of the first invisible barriers because you were limited by the edges of the TV screen. Pac-Man, I'm sure, came after that, and they were like, well, what if, what if we didn't worry about that, and we just made a little portal, and you just end up on the other side? Yeah which I think worked well for that style of gameplay. But, you know, it's, I think, probably part design, part technical limitations of the time. Well, yeah, it it clearly is. I, I think it's significant, though, because in a game like Pac-Man, uh, at least to a certain extent, they gave you a thematic reason within that game why you can't go past the edge of the screen. There was There's like the there walls was a, there. A, a physical barrier yeah. there. And there were the, you know, the little tunnels that you could take that would wrap you around to the other side of the screen, but... 
in Galaxian and Galaga, it's especially interesting because you are in outer space, like literally the, <laughs> the, the infinite possibilities of outer space, and yet you're restricted to just being able to fly on that screen. And it's because the, the technical limitations at the time. They had an idea for a, a video game that they wanted you to be able to play, and you had to make certain concessions. One of those concessions was that even though thematically you're in outer space with an infinite number of directions in which to travel, you can only move five feet right or left. So I got to play like this. It seemed <laughs> kind of like a legal gray area, but it was basically an uh, arcade cabinet in an office space that I was at working at this week. And it had basically every video game ever created on it, you know, like through Super Nintendo. And I think it even had some GameCube games on it, but thousands and thousands of games. So the first thing I did was go back and play some old arcade shooters like Galaga. And it's it's interesting how my expectations, even though I've played Galaga probably a million times in the past, it's been a while. And, you know, I expected to be able to move my ship forward and backwards. Like, I swear that was a thing, but that must have been like a follow up, some, some other shooter, <laughs> space shooter that I was playing because uh, I was like trying to dodge and I was like, no, I, I swear you could go forward in the original version. Um, and then likewise, you couldn't go off to the side edges of the screen. So I found that interesting that my ex- even though I'd played that game, my expectations of how it should work have changed over time. Uh, I even well, okay. got around to playing Space War, that game that's come up in our podcast a few times uh, for the Atari yeah. 2600. And, you know, it looks like shit on an LCD screen because it was made in the 70s or whenever that game came out and that's a similar thing like it's two players you're both triangles and you're shooting dots at each other but you know even in that you're constrained by the corners of the game space of the screen whereas in modern day i would expect you to be able to go off screen and come back on the other side but even then it was just uh it's real difficult to get used to now what was your first experience with this idea of an invisible barrier in a game like the first time you remember thinking to yourself, like, I should be able to go over here, but for some reason the game is not allowing it. Probably one of those early arcade games. You know, I grew up in the 90s. I was born at the end of the 80s, so I didn't really kind of super get into games until Super Nintendo, Nintendo 64 era. Yeah. But the one that sticks out in my mind is like a really early precursor to this kind of stuff was when open world games started to become a thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, exactly. uh, one of my favorite Rockstar games for the PS2 was this game called Smuggler's Run, where you're in a car, bike. Oh, that's a deep cut, brother. Yeah, I, I, I started looking into this subject and I was like, man, I forgot about Smuggler's Run. And then I, I started diving into it and I was like, yep, I, I totally remember everything about this game. But you're just a car. It was a big open world. You basically like go pick up things and, and drive them to the objectives. Um, yeah. But it was huge at the time, and of course, when they give you an open world, what you want to do is push limitations of that. So one of the things that I did was just drive to the mountains way out in the distance and find my way so I could get to the top of the mountains, which I think were supposed to be the barrier. But there was spaces in the top of those mountains that you could get all the way to the top, and then you could see over the edge of the screen, or the edge of the map. And yeah, where they stop like populating trees and stuff. Yeah, everything just kind of falls off and you can see like, oh, well, here's definitely like the clear edge of the map. And there were invisible barriers there, except not very well put together. And there were spots where you could drive through those invisible barriers and you would just fall off the edge of the map indefinitely. And your car mm-hmm. would just tumble and just into purgatory forever. 
it was just kind of funny because there was like physics to it. Your car would start falling and then you had like your little uh, speedometer and it would get up to like 400 miles per hour. You're like, Jesus Christ, like this, is this what hell looks like? You definitely remember those or that particular game a lot better than I do. It was like one of the, one of my first memories. launch game for PS2. I don't know. It was a long time ago. I think it was. Yeah. And my first, I think my first memory of a game that sort of arbitrarily restricted your movement was the original Super Mario Brothers for NES. Because you couldn't, you know, once you sort of progressed the screen, you couldn't walk backwards. And there was no real thematic reason built into that game to, you know, that said, like, why you couldn't go backwards. You just couldn't. That's the way that that game was made. Um, but yeah, when I think they like stopped what you're doing saying, that. I feel like at some point in Mario's history, you were able to run to the left. I think by Mario 2, you could go backwards. Really? That was that I'm it. pretty sure by Mario 2, because Mario 2, I think relied on a certain amount of backtracking because I remember you'd be going through doors that would take you to other parts of the level. Oh, shit. You, yeah. So you I mean think Mario 2, the one that's like not really canonical anymore? The one yeah, where like the, it, well, it was like a stage play and you were picking up potions and creating doors and stuff? Yeah, and that one was originally not even designed as a Mario game. It was another game to begin with. And then um, for whatever reason, Nintendo was like, oh, let's make this into a Mario game. And they swapped out the original sprites for Mario and Luigi and Peach sprites. I love those games. Which ones? The just the Mario two. Yeah, it'd be, like being able to play as Toad and Princess was was novel. Yeah, that's yeah, that stuff was cool. I think an underappreciated entry into the Mario franchise because I had a good time with that game when I was younger as well. I think for me, my experience with Invisible Barriers is similar to yours, where once video games became quote unquote open world, that was where you started to run into those issues of like, well. If, if it's truly open, why can't I go over here? You haven't given me, uh, you know, some sort of thematic reason why I can't go here. You've just arbitrarily restricted me with this invisible wall or this, uh, you know, whatever. Like the game has prompted me to return to the, the play area, which I think is going to lead into talking about some of the games we're playing now that have invisible barriers. You put GTA 3 down on here as one of your first ones. And I remember specifically one of the barriers that was preventing you from continuing uh, down the road was a tunnel that was like uh, the police barriers in front of it and you couldn't go through the tunnel. And I think it said, it said like to another city. And I remember like, how can you open this? Like there was a street sign saying that it was, it was supposed to lead to another city, but very obviously that was like the edge of the map and you couldn't drive through that tunnel. And I remember being super frustrated with that. I was like, no, I want to go through there. There must be a way. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's, I think, Part of the frustration about Invisible Barriers is that in some way, the developers need to limit you from being able to go everywhere. There's very few video games. It's hard to describe it as a true open world because every single video game in some way is limited by the restrictions of whatever technology it's running on. Yeah. But so in some ways, it's necessary to restrict the players, I think, the reason invisible barriers get so much hate and the reason we're talking about them now is because they feel so arbitrary. Yeah. And, um, there's, they, and they I don't, don't justify I don't, them. It completely breaks any kind of immersion that you had. And yeah, just like, I was just why? about to say, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily believe in the idea of immersion and gaming, at least not as some people sort of define it, but yeah, it, it does. It, it, it bumps. There's something about it psychologically that you go like, wait a second, why Why can I see that thing but not go over there? I'm going to jump right into talking about Destiny 2, a game I've been playing a lot lately. Um, you sure that's not why you're sick? <laughs> it, it might be, dude. I, 
well, I sleep like four hours a night now. That's that's if we're being completely honest, that's probably the reason I'm sick. (laughs) But Destiny 2 employs a, a couple of different things. It employs some invisible barriers, just literally like some places you cannot walk to, even though you can see it, you cannot go there. Uh, it also employs these like kill screens where once you sort of step out of bounds for four or five seconds, it just says, oh, you're dead. No justification. Not even like there's too high radiation over here. You can't do that. I would feel better about it if they did try to provide some sort of thematic reason for why that's the case. Yeah. This game sort of highlights a lot of my frustrations with Invisible Barriers in that Destiny 2 is a game about exploration. It's it's they call it an open world game. Um, in most cases, you can travel to the places that you can see and the places that you can't get to are walled off by doors or mountains and, or things like that, which makes it all the more frustrating when you see an area that it seems like your character should be able to go to, but it is then restricted from. Destiny 2 has parts of the game where you have to um, jump over chasms or fall down long elevator shafts and... And those are necessary for progressing in the game. But then there's other times where you'll you'll look at a, a spot and go like, well, you know, in, in the, the main campaign, I, you know, I was asked to make a jump like this. I feel like I should be able to make this jump now. And the game goes, nope, this is a spot where you can't do that. Yeah, and you can like or you'll look, see or like, you'll look down. I should be able to stand on that platform over there. Yep, exactly. Or you'll like look down below you and you'll see like, oh, there's a little outcropping of a cliff right there. I'm going to jump to that outcropping. And you'll make it about halfway down and the screen will start going, eh, 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 and you're like, well, shit, That's I'm, frustrating. I'm past the point of uh, no return here. So I guess I'm just dead. <laughs> I guess I'll just perish. And that's, it's, it's frustrating. I, I'm, I, you know, I, I, on this show, one of the things that, that I did early on was I reached out to one, a game developer, Ed Key, guy who made Proteus to see if he wanted to be on the show. His Response was polite, but he declined. He's currently working on a game and he wanted to wait until it was a little further in development before he agreed to do any podcast guest appearances. But one of his concerns is that shows like this can come off as a little bit like snarky or as a little bit negative. And I, ever since I got that feedback from him, he wasn't talking specifically about us. It was just one of his concerns. I've tried to sort of make it an effort of mine to to treat all these issues fairly. But this is one I this is like one of those things I don't think I can put a positive spin on outside of saying I understand that it's necessary to an extent. Sure. I mean there are examples of games that do it well. I think Red Dead Redemption did it perfectly because of the way that the world is built, because of the mechanics of the game and how you move and how you get around it made sense that there are impassable mountain ranges and rivers that you can't swim across because you would very clearly die. And that, to me, that makes sense. And I'm willing to mm-hmm. accept that as a limitation of why I can't go all the way up to Canada or something. You know, it's th- that makes sense to me. If you put a platform 20 feet away and I should be able to make that jump because the game has taught you in the, in the past that that is a mechanic that you should be able to do, that is bad game design. Yeah, I agree. I think you're dead on the money talking about Red Dead Redemption. That the key is to find thematic ways where it's explained within the game why a character can't go past a certain point. And it doesn't have to be I mean I would I would love for it to always be, you know, really imaginative 
and I don't know, you know, like, like something cool where you go like, oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. But even if it's just something like Fallout 4, it, it, you'll just hit an invisible barrier. It'll say, can't go this way. Why? Why did you not just use like the mechanic of radiation to kill me if I went that way? Or why did you not just make it so, you know, like a, a big badass death claw comes out and just murders you if you try to go that way? When you're making you know, these the- giant open world games, to me, that seems like you're challenging the player to explore. And when you punish them for getting to the edge of the map by not giving you a reason that you can't go forward. To me, that just that, that, that seems like a slap in the face to everything that you were trying to create up until that point. I mean, now a game like Smuggler's Run that I, I talked about earlier, they did try to make that, you know, really steep mountain range and you could you could jank your way up there uh, with your car and you weren't really supposed to be up there and then you eventually fall off the map. Like that that's fine. Like that was just people exploring and, and trying to break that game anyways. But yeah, if I see a building that I should be able to walk through in Fallout 4 and there's half of a wooden door blocking my path and it says, oh, this door is un- unopenable. It's like, what? What are you talking about? I could just reach on the other side and unlock it. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Was there anything else we wanted to mention on that before we move on to talking about our show a little bit? No. Um, well, you know what? Uh, I wanted to bring up the original Doom because that game was mm, great and yeah. influential in so many ways. Very clearly had walls set up so you couldn't go outside the map area, even though you're supposed to be on these huge Martian bases. But I really loved cheating in that game once I once I got through it. And mm-hmm. uh, my, one of my favorite cheats was the no-clip mode. And that would allow you to fly through walls, ceilings, floors. And it was really cool because you could just like go through all the walls and get like a really wide shot of how the entire level was laid out. And you're like, wow, that makes that's so cool that they designed it like that. Um, no real reason to bring that up here other than I remember being able to cheat your way and just fly through walls. And that was kind of yeah. cool that they allowed that uh, the player to have the agency to, to mess with that. Now, I, I will just add one quick thing. I would encourage everyone listening to go check out like a, a speed run of the the new Doom, Doom 2016, because in the um, the glitch speed runs, they will step out of bounds for to do a lot of parts of that game. But not using and, the cheat? Uh, just a no not using cheat using uh, exploits within the game to step out of bounds and it's cool it's kind of like what you're saying where you get to see what the level design looks like from outside of the level um sorry as i'm like snorting into my microphone again i'm sick i apologize it's definitely uh, not drugs not definitely not drugs well n- not drugs right now <laughs> anyway uh how did we start the show jared what uh what prompted us to to kick off this crazy thing we now call game breaking feature well me and you have been friends what 15 20 years something crazy uh since fifth grade so i don't know however long that's long, been long time yep um and i don't know we've we i think the thing that brought us together was video games when we met in elementary school and junior high we started talking about the games that we were playing and that really hasn't stopped ever since. <laughs> uh, here we are thir- in our 30s, and every time we get together when, when we're able to on the holidays and stuff, it, uh, we end up talking about some kind of video game-related thing. We're like, well, why don't we just record this? Yeah, for sure. I think when we were, I think when we were in fifth and sixth grade, we were two nerds trying to pretend to be cool, but we were, we were both nerds, man. Just <laughs> well, I remember like, being like, ashamed of my nerddom back then. It wasn't like mainstream nerds that everyone gets to enjoy today you you, but you you were just like whatever i'm just gonna be myself and 
uh, I was like, hell yeah, this guy's this guy's legit. I'm gonna go <laughs> hang out with him, and, and he'll accept me, and uh, I don't have to be a closet nerd around him. I mean, I I I certainly suffered the repercussions of that in other ways in my life, but yeah, I'm a, I guess I've I've always been uh, proud to just sort of appreciate the things that I appreciate, and and uh, you know welcome other people who appreciate the things I enjoy and accept people who appreciate things I don't enjoy. And it's just been uh, good because, you know, all of our friends, in, including the two of us, we're all spread out across the country now. And it's a good way to just keep in touch. And we both come from creative backgrounds. We both went to film school and uh, doing a podcast is just like a good way for us to just make things. And I don't know, for me, making things just feels good and being able to share that with other people who are willing to listen to us just BS about games. It's a, it's, it's a really fun thing to do. Yeah, the reason that I wanted to start doing this podcast, uh, for a while I was doing a YouTube show where I was reviewing movies with a, another friend of ours. Uh, and that sort, of, that sort of petered out. We sort of both lost interest in continuing to do that at around the same time. So we put that on the shelf, which was fine. But then my wife and I, we got pregnant and I was sort of looking for some way that I could be creatively expressive, but that wasn't going to sort of consume all of my time because obviously a, a big portion of my time was going to be going to focusing on family, being emotionally available for my wife and my, my kid and things like that. But I definitely didn't want to put that creative part of myself aside. So I, I sort of started messing around with this idea of doing a podcast about video games, but I didn't want it to be like every, well, I shouldn't say every other podcast out there. I mean, there's, there's lots of really great video game podcasts that, that do things like cover news and they cover it from different perspectives and that's all great. I didn't think that I didn't want to try to bring another one of those shows to the marketplace. I wanted to try to bring something a little bit different. So I kind of started kicking around this idea of like, what if we talk about game design? And then I brought that idea to you around the holidays last year to see what you thought about it. So what what was it like when I came to you with that idea? What were your first thoughts? Well, as soon as you said that you wanted to do a podcast, uh, I was totally on board. I didn't even know what it was about yet, but um, I assumed probably video games, right? <laughs> That's like the, the glue that holds us together here. But yeah, that and filmmaking are sort of our two sort of shared passions. You know, as soon as you said that, I think I kind of independently and organically came to the same conclusion where I didn't want to do a show that was about, you know, just current events. There's there's a lot of podcasts out there doing that uh, weekly and they, they do it really well. So, you know, I, I think I w that was one of the things I said to you. I was like, well, w what if we do things that are less timely and uh, they they have more to do with like big picture stuff and that seemed to be where, where you were already thinking and I was totally on board with that and I, I really enjoy being able to just kind of explore this because a lot of the times I don't have the time to think about things as critically as I would unless I am or you know I'm taking time out of my my week to think about things like invisible walls or peripherals and <laughs> when I get to research those things I, I it's super interesting you know I get to take time no, out of you my have life. no idea how much time I spend thinking about invisible walls <laughs> it's like 80% of my day it's just like why can't I why can't I go over there <laughs> and I think my my other first thought was how do I put this the internet has a reputation for being overly critical um, being overly negative about a lot of things. And that's just generally speaking. 
Uh, and I just wanted to do something that had a, a positive tone to it. People are they get up in arms a lot. And I just wanted to talk about it and be happy that we get to live in this time when video games are as good as they are now. And there's so much history to talk about. And uh, just being happy, having a positive conversation surrounding those topics, I think, really resonated with me when we started talking about this. So uh, it's it's definitely one of my favorite projects that we've done in a long time. Right on, man. Let's jump into... I guess our next little uh, video game mechanic we're going to talk about, which is lock picking and hacking mini games. I'm going to let you take the history on this one. Yeah, I was actually just about to snatch it from you, but I'm glad you no, gave I'm giving it to me it to willingly. You. <laughs> okay, good. You can't fire me. I quit. <laughs> um, so one of the earliest examples of lock picking that I could find in a video game comes from 1989's Dungeons and Dragons Advanced Hills Far. I have not heard now, this of this isn't game. The, well, so this is, we, we've mentioned um, another Dungeons & Dragons advanced game in the past. I th- think it was our side quest episode was the last time that we mentioned um, a game from this series. Now, this was a series where, um, at least in some iterations, you could create a character and then export that character to be to be used in other games in the series, this Dungeons & Dragons advanced so it was sort of like this overarching game engine that they had built, which is really cool. You know, was, we, did I, they at the build time, that engine with the intent of making it a series of games? I think so. Yeah, I think it was like, I think they were trying to make it as similar to the Dungeons and Dragons tabletop experience as they could, given the limitations of the technology at the time. And part of that is that there's just this ongoing adventure that you can be part of. Again, here's another example of a, of a way that Dungeons & Dragons has continued to influence modern game design. I, I think it's fascinating how many times we end up talking about the pen and paper RPG in relation to how games are made today. Because but that was the original, a, like, go anywhere, do anything, make your own story. And that is, like, as a, a big of an adventure as you can get, considering, you know, the getting together with friends and playing a game. So... Of course, that would be the ideal experience trying to recreate that for video games. Yeah, for sure. So Hillsfar, what it did was when you would encounter a, a treasure chest or a locked door, it would present you with a picture of the the tumblers inside of the lock. And they looked like jagged teeth. And then you were presented with a selection of keys. And you had to quickly pick from among those keys the key that sort of with those jagged edges of the tumblers. So is it like in order to geometry recognition or pattern recognition? Yeah, yeah. And it was it could be actually pretty complex jagged shapes on the tumblers. So in some cases it could be quite difficult to find the key that you needed in time. And I I think again, I, I haven't played this game. I was just sort of doing some online research. If if anyone knows, I would, I would love to hear some feedback. It just sounds it, like but. standardized testing to me. They're trying to make me learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah, it's like SATs. I think you would have to sort of, it'd be like, okay, for this tumbler, find the key that matches this shape. Do it quick. Okay, and then you'd go to the next tumbler in the lock and find the key that matches that shape. So I think Was you were Was there a penalty for failing? Um, that I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if you only had one attempt at the lock or one attempt at each tumbler. Any of those mechanics, I don't know. But this was sort of the first example that I could find of lock picking appearing in a game. I don't know how how, how that com- how that compares to uh, that translates to real life lock picking, which obviously is nothing like that. But I think it's a it's a fun little mini game 
that you could probably get better at over time and you probably have a good chance of succeeding you know if you're if you're good at it i really hate how lock picking in games has advanced over the years i i think the last one or the first one i can really remember getting tired of was elder scrolls oblivion and i think most people are pretty familiar with that but it would just bring up like the side view of a tumbler and your lock pick and you would just have to like jiggle the lock pick until the tumbler would get stuck and it's like it would yep. vibrate or something and you press a button to lock it in yep. and you i mean you'd probably do that like 500 times over the course of the game and I, I learned to hate that very quickly and i read somewhere online that there was a way to get like infinite lock picks or it was like a skeleton key or something like that and so that was the first thing that i did when i when i started the game i was like i'm gonna go find this this all opening lock pick because screw this mini game it's so boring so Pool of Radiance was the the game that we mentioned in episode two. It was from 1988, so a year before Hillsfar. And I think Hillsfar was one of the games that you could sort of transfer your character from. You could transfer your character from Pool of Radiance into Hillsfar. Yeah, I mean, one of my first experiences with the whole lockpicking mechanic. Well, see, I, I, I really like the game Deus Ex, the original game from 2000. And that one, I don't, I don't think it had like a lock picking mechanic. You just have like se. a multi tool, right? Or did you have actual lock picks? Oh, I think you would like advance your lock picking in that game, and right? Yeah, you would stat. either pick the lock, or you had to have the key for whatever door you were trying to open. But there's no um, mini game associated with that necessarily. Not that I recall. No, there. You could sort of consider, I guess, maybe having to locate the keys or locate passwords to computers as part of maybe some sort of mini game but that's not that's not really what we're talking about in this case but my first experience with like sort of this true you know offshoot mini game was from 2004 in the thief deadly shadows game that one was like a ring of concentric circles and you had to sort of find the sweet spot on each circle and then lock it into place and then find the sweet spot on the next circle and lock that one into place was that fun um i would say that in almost all of these cases I don't find lock picking mini games very fun. I don't people are welcome to disagree. I think there's arguments to be made that these lock picking mini games break up the monotony well <laughs> break up the monotony of, of of shooting enemies and explosions. Um Don't you hate it no, when you're that, having that fun? It, it does provide some sort of alternative to that kind of gameplay. So Oblivion every time you went into a screen the game around you would basically freeze so there was not really a whole lot of penalties for failure i can understand where lock picking minigames would make sense when you're kind of racing the clock like your guard might be coming around the corner so if you are good at lock picking or if you're good at that mini game it would kind of translate to being good at lock picking in that world it would make sense that you get through the door faster and you can continue along your way without being in danger but I just feel like most mini game lock picking mini games don't really have that penalty for failure. It's just kind of annoying. Yeah, and obviously they try, right? Like you see in a lot of these games, they give you a certain number of lock picks. I played Fallout Four recently, and you get—I mean, you get a shit ton of lock picks. And granted, I, I'm playing it on normal difficulty. I'm sure if you crank it up to the survival difficulty, it gets a lot more. I don't know, like they, they withhold a lot more of those resources and maybe lock picking does become a lot more punishing. If you break a single lock pick, you feel like you're you're going to lose the game. But they, they're trying, I think, mechanically to come up with ways that failure punishes you, 
without having it completely close off that avenue to you. But I think like what you're talking about is a really good idea. In so many of these games, even in Oblivion, if it didn't sort of lock off the screen, there's still no restriction for you like murdering the guard and then trying to open the lock. But I, I would like to see some of these games that have mini games try to come up with more interesting ways to, to challenge you besides an arbitrary timer or simply removing one resource from your inventory. So something like what you were suggesting where it's like, dude, if, you, if you're if you good at this mini game, you can get in that door quickly. And by getting in the door quickly, you avoid detection. It's been a while since I've played Wolfenstein The New Order, uh, but they had a locked picking mini game in it. And I barely remember it, which means that it must not have been very intrusive. Uh, but I do remember like, it was you basically are like lining up arrows on like a wheel that you know looks like a lock a tumbler of some kind um, mm-hmm. and i don't remember it being very hard but if you were trying to stealth your way through that game which was a lot of fun the stealth in that game was really good getting through those doors faster would be beneficial because guards on patrol you know they don't just stop moving when you go into that screen so i remember that being unintrusive yet made sense in the world right on yeah that's like that's exactly what i'm talking about the, uh, the other thing that fallout 4 did Besides the lock picking, which was, I mean, the lock picking was was such a simple mini game that it, I mean, it's hard to be upset at the feature when it doesn't really like detract too much, but it's also just didn't feel necessary in that game. But beyond lock picking, that game also had hacking, and I liked, I liked the hacking, I like the hacking mini in that games. game too. I thought, and that, there's a lot weird, of mods right? on PC that um, subvert the hacking because people don't like it, but. I mm. thought that was like actually kind of fun, like fun little word games. Yeah. And that's weird, right? Like, I, like I'm willing to, to sort of engage that part of my brain. So describe, like, you know, describe how that works for people who may not have played the Fallout games real quick. Yeah. So in Fallout, you're given basically it's a large screen of garbled text. And amongst all the garbled text, there's several words. It could be like a dozen words presented to you within all of the sort of like ASCII graphics that are going on on the screen and the quote-unquote hacking part of it is you're trying to find out what the password is by selecting one of these words from amongst all the text on the screen and when you pick a word it will tell you which letters in that word were correct and in the correct position so it'll be there'll be a bunch of words like ball wall slap you know so it'll be a bunch of like four letter words and if you pick it so like let's say the the password is wall and you pick the word ball it'll it'll tell you that three of the letters uh from your selection were correct and in the right location and then you'll look around and see like well was it the you know was it the b that was correct was it my one of the l's that was correct um so you're kind of like scanning around all the possible words to find out which ones have matching letters in those positions without knowing exactly which of your selected letters were correct. While I, I enjoyed that and I thought sometimes it was a little challenging, but it, you know, once you get it, it's it's not really that hard. The one thing I don't like about that system is that there wasn't a penalty for failure. If you messed up like three or four times, uh, it would it would lock you out. But if you messed up three out of the four times, all you had to do was back out from the computer screen and go back in and it would reset all your tries with new words. Yeah. So it was like, nah, it was just, it, it was just fun, but easily subverted through kind of like a cheesy method. So yeah, I agree. Take from it what you it, will. Yeah. And this, I think, goes back all the way back to our the first topic we discussed with, with Invisible Barriers is I think that in order for these kinds of mini games to 
really advance for them to become bigger parts of these games, if that's even necessary. It might not be, but for them to become more interesting than they are, I think people got to get more creative with the things like penalties for failure or, you know, degrees of success, if that's something that you can somehow find a way to reward. But I I think as they are, in most cases, I find them to be a a minor annoyance. I mean, not, not, not bad enough that I'm going to like, you know, put a game down because I'm, I'm not enjoying the lock picking component of it. That's not what we're talking about here. But I think if you want to sort of, if we're talking about elevating games in every aspect, this is one that I think could be and should be looked at again by developers rather than just sort of having the, the cut and paste mentality of, of lock picking mini games that seems to go into so many of the, the titles we play these days. What would you do different in the future? Can you think of anything specific that you'd like to see changed about this? I think overall, I just don't really enjoy that that aspect of games. I don't know. I haven't really seen it done super well yet, so I don't know what it would look like. I, I you know, like I think that making it uh, the penalty is you don't get through the door faster, and that would have some kind of obvious consequence that makes sense, and that's that that's fine for me as long as there's an alternate way to do that same objective. Like if I want to get into that room by smashing that door down, I can do that too, but I'm going to make a lot of noise. Uh, I've been playing through Divinity Original Sin 2. And Ooh, it's a, nice. This is not like the place I can, I'm going to go into that game a lot, but it's probably one of my favorite RPGs of all time at this point. It's, uh, it's real good. But anyways, that game has lock picking in it. And it's kind of just, you just have lock picks in your inventory. They don't really take up space or weight or anything like that uh and there's even a character that can just lock pick without lock picks but you can you can lock pick and you know get through the doors if your if your skill is high enough if it's just a, a number stat or you can just attack the door until it, it busts open and that's i really like that even you can do that with like treasure chest you can just hit them until they break at the penalty of causing damage to all your equipment but you know it doesn't really break up the gameplay doesn't put a screeching halt to the gameplay. It's not intrusive. So more stuff like that, I think. is That's like way sort of like bigger picture kind of game design that I don't know that everyone, you know, like can all indie devs sort of implement these kinds of sweeping changes that that at least I personally would like to see. But I think the thing is justify why the game, the mini game is in the game, in the bigger game, you know, make it bigger, make there a reason for this to be in here. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, but to sort of get to the, just real quickly, the add on to what you were saying about, you know, having alternate methods of accomplishing these things, I think that's a big deal. Cause I think in the real world, you know, if something doesn't go your way, like say, <laughs> say you're a hired thief and you're trying to break into a house and your, your lock pick breaks in the, in the lock and, and that's no longer an option for you. But the man that hired you has your family held captive and, you have to get into this house. You're going to find another way in. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's always other options in the real world to accomplish things besides, you know, sort of maybe the initial way that you would approach it. Yeah. Just don't Um, make it feel arbitrary. And I think that's the main thing. Yeah. And I, and I would like to see sort of other options opened up for players to, to do things like, you know, get into, get into chests or get into a door or whatever it is. Um, We've beat that horse enough. Let's uh, let's talk about our show some more. Jared, what's your favorite part of doing this show since we started it? What what's just getting spend the time out to be with you, favorite? my friend? Oh. No, I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> oh, you, fuck, you fucking dick. <laughs> uh, no, it is great. Like I said, being able to, you know, gives us an excuse to just shoot the shit for a couple hours, you know, every couple weeks. And, you know, we stay in, we stay in touch via text, of course, but it's it's great being able to just talk about the things that we like. My, my favorite thing, though, is um, being in media as, as my career. Uh, I do a lot of different types of things. And uh, this show has enabled me, has given me a reason to reach out to people who I've been following in the game space, in the video game industry for a long time. Uh, people who I think are making great content and we get to invite them on our show and talk to them. And that's, that's really cool. And like, for the most part, people have been very receptive and um, I don't know why they, they donate their time to us, but uh, it's, it's been, it's, I'm very gracious for all the feedback and all the willingness of people to come and help us out with this. It's just the conversations we've had are very enlightening. I've been meeting a lot of great people. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely one of the things that I wanted to highlight, uh, was when we first sat down to talk about what we wanted this show to be, we agreed that guests, we wanted guests to be a part of this experience. And, you know, we talked about like, did we want it to just be uh, video games journalists? Did we want it to just be game developers? What were we looking for? And we kind of agreed like we would just take anyone uh, that we didn't want to restrict it to just being people from, you know, one area of game design or another. And and that's left us open to speaking with some some really cool people from all over the place. You know, we, we've had opportunities to bring some of our friends on the show that that are working in fields related to the industry. But we've also had the opportunity to like to speak with, uh, you know, Ryan, who's a esports commentator and speak with Mary, who, you know, who works for one of the largest video game streaming services on the Internet. And we got, you know, a chance to talk to Jamie, who's a, a psychologist that writes about video games, which, you know, all these people have been like super fantastic to talk to. One of my and concerns yeah. when we first started this was because you and I have such similar backgrounds and come from similar places that I didn't want it to be an echo chamber of just us circle jerking around the, the games that we like. Yeah, and, an echo and... chamber of us circle jerking around. Let's <laughs> see what you did there. um so yeah like having people come in with a a lot of uh different backgrounds has been an incredible experience and uh, hearing their input and uh, seeing you know why they got into video games it's it's been great um i usually a behind the scenes person i i work you know I, i do a lot of producing in television so i'm not ever in front of the camera but this gives me a chance to you know be creative in you know in in front of the microphone and have my voice be a part of the conversation and that's been really rewarding. Yeah. I don't I don't know why anyone agrees to be on our show, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> it's still mind-blowing to me. But one of the other things I wanted to mention too that has also been sort of a a surprise but uh a really welcome surprise was how much I enjoy getting feedback on the show. I think so far, you know, we're we're only 14 episodes in. Our community is, is fairly small, but everyone so far seems really respectful. People are willing to share their opinions, even when they're sort of at uh, odds with our opinions. And uh, and I welcome that. And I, I like being able to read people's Twitter messages and emails and stuff on the show and and sort of in a way have a conversation with our audience again. So it's not just, you know, the Jared and Steve show come, you know, come listen to us 
repeat what the other one says for an hour and a half. Yeah, being able to uh, interact with our audience. And we've had people from, you know, across the world tweet us and write us emails. Surprisingly, yeah. I'm like, I'm, really, like, I'm really amazed that we we have an international audience. That's, that's, uh, that's really cool. It's, you know, perspectives very and humbling, people that very you, you wouldn't normally get to talk to day to day. And uh, I think that's my, my other favorite part of the show is just people are willing to partake in the conversation with us and, and the community has been outstanding so far so i yeah. i hope to continue that trend yeah i the video game community uh, i feel like especially lately has been well can be toxic i'm not gonna say it has been there have been some things in the news lately that have sort of i guess maybe heightened my impressions in this regard but i prefer to think of uh, them as the vocal minority yeah i and you know i i hope that that's true but this community can be toxic so i I hope that we're sort of in some way helping to cultivate a community of people who who recognize video games as art, who want to help make video games better through you know expressing themselves in responsible ways and you know not going online and threatening to dock someone if they don't make a game a certain way but instead having an intelligent conversation about you know what what's the best way to do this you know what's the best way to implement this kind of mechanic or change this thing to to help video games you know become more than they currently are you know there's 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 still a lot of room to grow video game developers are still trying to figure this stuff out and i think they look to the audience to to figure out what people are looking for and I think in some ways people sort of take advantage of that. You know, they 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 feel entitled to having a game a certain way. So I I appreciate that we at least so far seem to be engendering this this respectful conversation between ourselves and our audience and our guests and hopefully the industry. Let's talk about underwater levels, Jared. I don't know why I got so high pitched there. I'm just gonna blame every like awkward thing I do on this show to just me being sick. Cause man, I. I might be dying. Like if I stop talking at some point, maybe just call the morgue and send them on over. <laughs> we all might be dying. We all well, are dying at some point. Yeah, but not today. <laughs> <laughs> just don't go near the open ocean. Underwater levels in video games, I think they have a reputation for being either terrible, challenging, or just outright terrifying. Uh, one of the earliest underwater levels... That I could remember it was, uh, you know, the original Super Mario Brothers, level 2-2. That was the first time that you jump into the water and you're kind of swimming vertically through the Mario space. I don't yeah. remember a whole lot other than that in the game. Did you have to have, like, oxygen in that? Were there bubbles that you had to get into? I remember some Mario games, like, you had to get into a bubble and float around. No, there was no bubbles. There was just sort Boy of the, game. There was the level timer, like there was on all the Mario levels. You had to get through it as, in a certain amount of time. Did the water um, levels auto scroll in Super Mario Brothers? Um, or was that I, later? I don't believe so. Okay, dude, it's been so long since I've played those water levels. I mean, the last time I played Super Mario Brothers was probably back when I had my NES. You know, back in the early '90s. Yeah, when I was a a wee lad. That level had some banging jams, though. Everyone kind of forgets about the music from that original Super Mario underwater level. I I love that that original music in there. I think the underwater levels in video games sort of provide opportunities for uh, whoever's composing the music to do something a little different than they usually do. So like Donkey Kong Country is one of my favorite games of all time. And I, I 
actually really like the underwater levels in that game. Maybe entirely just because of the music, man. Like I can hear a Donkey Kong Country underwater level song and I like I remember what it's like sitting on the floor at my my buddy Cole's house playing that game. Okay, you ready? All right, all right let's do it. Yeah, dude, I, I love the original Mario. It's like way more music. relaxing than I felt like the gameplay provided. I remember being stressed out all the time during those water levels. Yeah, I, I remember not being very good at the Super Mario, at least the original one, the underwater levels for that one. I'm going to jump right into my first experience. Like, outside of Mario, one of my other early memories of underwater levels was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game for NES. It came out in 1989. I don't remember and, this at all. I'm pretty sure I played and, that game too. Dude, if if every single person listening to this podcast that remembers that game just got triggered at me mentioning the underwater level. I guarantee <laughs> it. Because that thing was infuriating, man. It was, it, it was the only time that the mechanic ever came up in that game and it sort of represented a sort of like a break in that game. The game sort of switches from one type of game to another after that point. But you have to like swim under this dam. And I can't remember if you're like flipping switches. I think you're diffusing bombs is what it is. You're like diffusing bombs under this dam. But you're swimming through these tunnels that are lined with um, kind of looks like pink seaweed, if I'm remembering correctly. And if you touch it, it'll, it electrocutes you. As seaweed does. The the hit boxes were so goofy. Like you you wouldn't feel like you touched the edges and it would claim that you did. It was it was one of the most infuriating underwater levels of any video game and for good reason. I'm surprised you don't you don't remember that. It maybe is so see, long ago. It's, maybe it's just something that I have blocked out of my memory for good reasons. And I'm talking about the old like the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. So yeah. there was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. God, I feel like I'm stumbling through my words because my nose is so plugged up but there was the original one that was the arcade game i don't think that one had any kind of underwater level but that was that was teenage mutant ninja turtles 2 on the nes teenage mutant ninja turtles 1 was like a completely different kind of game it was not that sort of like side-scrolling brawler at least not in its entirety but yeah dude if you get a chance definitely look up a video or look up a speed run of that old game i i recently rewatched a speed run and had uh like vietnam-esque flashbacks to that underwater <laughs> level as i saw the guy um jamming through it but then he does it so easily and i'm like dude when i was a kid it was like it was a miracle if you could get through that part of that game my earliest memories of this were i would i would say probably sonic the hedgehog for sega genesis and to this day i don't understand why they put water levels in that game let's take a game where the entire premise is about going fast. Sonic got to go fast. Collecting rings, doing crazy spins, going around loop-de-loops, and then just throw in a couple of water levels. One of them was called the Labyrinth, and it was just a maze. And some of it, you go above the water, but a lot of it was underneath the water, trying to find your way through this endless maze, and you had oxygen, so you would run out of breath, and the only way to get breath back was to find these bubbles coming out of the ground. And it had the most unnerving Jaws-like music when you'd start to run out of air that still to this day gives me anxiety. I think 
early video game design was like old movie design where like back in the whatever it was like 20s 30s people didn't have opportunities to see a whole lot of film so film kind of had to have everything in it which is why you look at a movie like citizen kane and it has it has the part when they're like camping in the jungle where they reused assets from king kong or it has like a song and dance number in the middle of it and it's because they were trying to give an audience a little bit of everything a little bit of like a tra- a travelogue and a little bit of a musical and a little bit of a comedy and a drama and a romance they were like cramming everything in I think early game design was kind of like that too, which is where you get these games like you got to have the sand level and you got to have the fire level and you got to have the ice level and you got to have the underwater level. And I think in a lot of ways, games have sort of progressed past feeling like they have to do that. Like they have to give you a little bit of everything. But for some reason, I feel like this idea of an underwater level has continued through to today. Did you play Sonic the Hedgehog, the original? I did, yeah. I never had a uh, a Sega console, so I would have to go one of my neighbors' houses and uh, play on there. So I didn't get a whole lot of experience with it, but I've got my I've got my my Sonic legs under me for sure. So here, here's the running out of air underwater song that is totally not the Jaws song. Better hurry. Better find that air. Oh, you're gonna lose. <laughs> you're gonna die instantly. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, I can totally see where you're coming from with that. And then you die. And it was like, oh my God, like that just, that noise was just like anxiety inducing. And as a kid, I was, I was not about it. Like when you dive to the bottom of a pool to this day, does that music kick in your head? Yeah, it's just in my head. I'm just like, well, I'm going to die in about <laughs> five seconds here unless I get there. I had a good run. <laughs> um, was and, Okay, so that was just annoying and like that, that really, that, that sound cue elevated the anxiety that came along with that. But uh, the game that really made it underwater levels terrifying for me was Shadows of the Empire, the Star Wars game for Nintendo 64. And there was a level where you're running around the sewers, and I think it was a throwback to when uh, Luke, Leia, and Han Solo, they're all in the gar- trash compactor, and there's that, that monster in there. Mm-hmm. Um, except they expanded on it, and this thing's kind of hunting you throughout the sewers. And then at the end of the level, spoilers, you fight this underwater monster. And it's the only time you're underwater in the entire game. And it's just like this huge tentacle thing with eyes on its tentacles. And you can't really move very well. And it's real murky green water. And it had scary music. And as a kid, that was absolutely terrifying. And I I, I remember it being difficult, too. Um, And I think that's another thing about underwater levels in games. They have a reputation for being notoriously difficult. Yeah. Because usually they're like switching up the game mechanics. And you, you don't have time to practice that. And... Uh, exactly it's generally i don't know people have a hard time with it i think the obvious one is uh ocarina of time had the water temple that most people Mm, found like the hardest part of that entire game Uh, i don't remember a whole lot about it but i did get through the game eventually so yeah and that's one that's unfortunately i i never played in its time um super mario uh 64 had that disgusting eel underneath the water like everything oh, yeah. in that game was like cute and cartoony and then you go underwater as Mario and there's this giant fucking eel with sharp teeth that's going to eat you if you don't if you don't take it out. It, it's like why? Have you seen screenshots for Super Mario Odyssey? They're bringing that fucking eel back in HD. I saw, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> why? What are they trying to do to these kids? Yeah, so I you know, I think underwater levels do present issues for games because they do in a lot of cases implement these 
mechanic, you know, like it's, it's a change of controls. It's a change of pace. It's a change of a lot of things that may only be used once in the game. You know, I, I, I think of a couple of like modern examples of games that have these levels that are for some reason underwater. I, uh, Recently, Grand Theft Auto V has, on one of the missions, you're scuba diving underwater. You, you break into a place through uh, some pipes. Thematically, it's cool, but then that mechanic never really comes up again. So you're sort of like thrust into the situation to use this like swimming mechanic to progress the game. But then it Maybe it, it was just me, but I was also having wayside. a super hard time. Like you were in a submarine at some point. And I remember yeah. that and being that's the like other thing. not intuitive. And I was like, why am I having such a hard time with the submarine? That's the other thing is there's there's that submarine part as well. That's, I think, a separate mission, um, if I'm remembering correctly. And I don't remember like having to go into the water ever again after that, right? And then there's, well, so there's another side quest that you can do. A woman asks you to go retrieve some stuff from the bottom of the ocean. Mm. And now this was really weird because in Grand Theft Auto V, they clearly put a lot of time and effort into creating it what it looks like under that ocean yeah They're, it looks nice you know, it does and they spent a lot of time working on you know diving mechanics and, and things like that but the game itself never really gave you a reason to do any of that stuff except for a handful of missions where where because you hadn't been doing it before that point and or those skills were never necessary after that point it felt arbitrary in the end at least to me it did I think we're probably going to end up t- titling this episode like minor annoyances or something. Cause again, these are just, these are minor annoyances in, in, I think in general, most people really like all the things that Grand Theft Auto five did as you know, from a gameplay standpoint. Yeah. None of these mechanics are like game breaking. And I'm not going to complain that they spent a lot of time trying to flesh out what the world looks like underwater and giving you that as an option to explore, but they just didn't give you enough reason to explore or to continue to practice those mechanics once you were done with those missions. And I kind of feel bad for people who have to design underwater aspects to games that aren't set underwater necessarily, where it's, you know, a side thing. Because by the nature of video games, like it's, you need to have a certain amount of fidelity in the control and the movement of your character. And then when you, you know, just by the nature of being underwater, all that's restricted and everything is moves very different. Uh, it, I can see why that's usually comes up as, as jarring and hard to do because making that make sense, making that movement make sense underwater doesn't really translate very well to video games most of the time. Which is too bad because I, you know, I think there is a lot of really cool stuff to explore in that space. Um, I mean, you put a couple of games on here, Subnautica and Abzu. And I think these are good examples of games that, are showing that like yeah there there is beauty to be found underwater that um, you can have a game that focuses on underwater exploration and have it be a satisfying experience well those two examples are games that were built from the ground up to be water-based games subnautica but yeah, but- is like a as a water world so like that was the first consideration when going into the, making the game i guess my point is that they put thought and care into what that underwater experience is like. And yeah, they, they built their whole game around it, but it proves that, you know, just being underwater by itself doesn't make a gameplay bad. Yeah. So, I mean, just like with any of these, these topics we've discussed today, or I guess essentially any topic we've discussed on this show in the past or 
we'll be discussing in the future, I would just like to see, you know, some more thought and care be put into the implementation of being underwater in games. If the story that you want to tell makes it mandatory that I spend time underwater in that world, make it fun, make it engaging, make it intuitive, make it rewarding. And if you can, try to make it something that's not just like a one-off experience, but make it something like in Grand Theft Auto. They, they spent so much time building an entire ocean for that game that I never saw because I never cared to go back to it. But if they had given me a reason to or made the, you know, the experience of being underwater more fun, I might have I might have gone and looked at that stuff more. And I kind of touched on this, but I think one of the other aspects of underwater levels is just by the nature of being humans, we're like we are land-based creatures and oceans especially have so much of the unknown and you know it's that that phasmophobia I think is the word uh, is just the fear of the open ocean and game like Subnautica where even though it's it's a game where you spend most of your time 99% of your time underwater uh, that game is terrifying everything in that ocean you know it's an alien planet but you eventually it's it's a crafting game so you get to you, you eventually make cool submarines and personal transport vehicles but the deeper you go the bigger these giant mo- water monsters become and that is almost scarier than any horror game I've played. It's just being the thought of being underwater next to one of these giant creatures that uh, probably mean you harm and want to eat you. Uh, that That is a thing that I think really resonates with why underwater levels make people so uneasy. It's just like it's hard to get away from those things that are chasing you because you are usually like some kind of human swimming around and it's, uh, man, that game's scary. You know me, I don't have too many like strong phobias, but being like deep underwater in the ocean is probably one of my, well, it's funny because I would like call it a phobia. Like I can sort of mentally place myself in that situation of like, man, I think if I was down there, I'd be scared. But I'm also the kind of person who would love to like jump in a submarine and go see what's down there. So yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it's not, maybe that's not that. the, yeah. <laughs> Jared. What is the process of putting the show together like for you? Like, yeah. what's your what's your role in this thing? So occasionally people ask us how the hot dog is made. And, um, you know, I, I just kind of, I Googled it. Like, what are some best practices? I, myself, we both decided on uh, buying the same microphones so that we don't sound too different from each other. And there's not a whole lot of mixing that needs to happen between the two mics. But... Uh, we're using Blue Yeti mics. Um, I have mine on a boom arm and a pop filter on my desk. And uh, that is how I, I sit at my desk at home and record. And you and I, we get on Discord and we bring our guest on and we just join the Discord server. And then uh, each person records locally. And I sync it all up in uh, post-production. I edit everything, take out all of our awkward pauses. I know I make us sound real good, but we're basically terrible at this, so... Uh, yeah, I do some I do some editing and, you know, we're getting better at it every time. So I, I've had to do less and less editing for that purposes. And sometimes we run long and I'll, I'll cut some stuff out that I think doesn't necessarily relate to the, the topic or when we get on too much of a tangent, I'll, I'll try to cut that down for time. Yeah, it's funny because we originally started out using Skype as as our way of talking over the Internet. And then we had the episode where we were talking about boss battles. And on that one, we had uh, two guests and Skype sort of didn't allow us the options to mute one side of the conversation. You know, it was like, it was 
they're both speaking into the same microphone, but listening in on separate computers. So there was like issues with hearing an echo over one of the computers and Skype didn't provide us with those options. So we made a, a decision to switch over to discord, which I think has been a lot better. It provides at least in our experience so far, I think better audio quality online and then yeah, just more options for us. So yeah, I mean, aside from Skype just being terrible in general, uh, Discord has, has been more stable for the most part. Most of our guests have been able to record locally on their end. Yeah, I was just about to jump into that because we kind of skipped over that earlier. We just we record using Audacity, which is free software that uh, anyone can get anywhere. Yeah, it's it's open source, and most people have some kind of like gaming headset or just you know any kind of microphone will do, and um, that's usually the best way, just in case internet connections cut out they they still have the full recording on their local machine uh but aside from that i have a secondary computer here um it's my laptop which i plug into my mixer which will record a backup of the of the chat our voice chat that we have on discord and i am able to log into discord through a third account and capture only our guests audio so that we're not uh talking over each other getting both of, you know, all, th- all three of ours in one thing. So it's been a nice backup. So far, I haven't had to use it. Um, and all of this is really kind of just trial and error because we don't have much of a audio production background. And I'm just kind of figuring this out as we go. You know, one of the things when we started the show was we just wanted to get something recorded at a certain point. You know, like we'd done a bunch of planning and research. Uh, I mean, there there is a lot of work that goes into putting a podcast together. I think it you know, it's very easy to listen to a podcast and go, oh, you just turn your microphone on and talk about something for an hour and you made a podcast. Um, but there is a lot that goes into all of this. But at a certain point, you got to just like pull the trigger and say like, okay, I've, I've sort of done as much research as pl- as much planning and preparation as I can. And we just got to record something. We did a couple of test recordings. And I think the first one was me and you just bullshitting about some movies that we saw. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking movies. But that's all part of the process. You know, it's it's just got to get something done. You got eventually you got to put the pen to paper. You got to put your voice into digital format and just see what that what it's like, you know. And there's a lot of things that we've learned along the way of like best practices, even if it's something as simple as like how to sort of onboard a guest who's not as familiar with this stuff as we are. You know, that's that's something that we've gotten better at. There's a lot of good tutorials, too. I wasn't real familiar with audio mastering before I got into this, but I've just did a lot of reading, watched a bunch of YouTube videos. And, uh, you know, now I have a very, uh, by no means an expert on it, but I do all of our editing in Adobe audition because I already have the Adobe suite and it has a lot of tools in it. I make, um, you know, I sweeten up our audio a little bit. I cut out, uh, some of the echoes and, um, you know, electrical interference that might happen occasionally. And it's uh, basically down to a macro now. I have that set up to press a button, especially for me and you, where our audio doesn't change. I can just press a button and it basically masters, you know, sweetens all that audio very quickly. And then it's just really just mixing it as I edit. There's a lot of stuff that goes into this. Like, obviously, you you manage our website and our the RSS feed for the, the podcast. But I, I guess sort of my other big, my contribution outside of sort of handling a lot of the social media stuff for us is I... Um, I put show notes together for every episode. I'll, I don't. I, I don't do it by myself, but I'm typically the one who will sort of start the show notes and put the the beginning of the research together. And we do that through Google Documents. I'll sort of lay out the the bones of what our discussion is going to be like, sort of from. And it, I lay it out chronologically, so we kind of go from top to bottom on the show notes. This is what we're going to discuss. Like 
here's our introduction. Here's where we talk about the history of whatever topic it is we're talking about. And then sort of break down what, what at least the things I think are interesting for us to discuss. And then that goes to Jared. And then we'll also go to our guests if they're so inclined and Jared and our guests can make any additions that they want. So I sort of just like start that process and then, you know, Jared hops in and, you know, helps steer it in a, in a direction. And I think that's something that we've gotten better at as the more we get into this series is that it is like a backbone for a conversation. We have an idea of, of the direction that we want to take this because we only want to spend so much time. Like no one wants to listen to like a five hour podcast of us. So um, being able to focus in on our topic is really helpful, but being able to speak to it, you know, naturally making it, making it or get sound organic. Um, we, we, deviate sometimes sometimes we go on tangents and i think being able to like let go of some of the show notes and and maybe just talk about them uh, organically as they come up in conversation has made the show flow a lot better over time uh but the show notes are indispensable as far as keeping us on track with what we want to talk about and getting our guests on board with you know what what it is that we're trying to do yeah it's funny for me because like we'll sometimes pick an uh, like an episode topic like even our last one digital distribution we sort of landed on that topic since Alex works in that field and I was like man you know like I I have some thoughts on digital distribution but I don't know if we can kind of make that into an entire episode and then I started to put show notes together for it and I was like oh shit I, I don't know I don't know if we're gonna have enough time to cover everything yeah I've actually felt about our, our last couple of topics have been like man I don't know like how much there is to talk about this and then we end up going two hours <laughs> that is something yeah. that I've kind of noticed as we've been progressing is a, our podcasts are getting a little bit longer and longer each time but um, I think that the content is getting better so I'm I, I don't I don't cut out things that I feel are are valuable to the conversation just to cut things out you know yeah I'd be curious to to sort of know moving forward what people think about the length of of our podcast that's something I, I've I was very conscious of when we first started of like, no, I don't want this to be longer than an hour. And then like, you know, I think it might've been our first episode was like a little bit over an hour. I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll let that go. And then it's kind of progressively been getting longer and longer and I haven't minded, but it is something that's been on the back of my mind Yeah. of like, how long do we want this thing to be? Are people comfortable listening to um, me as I cough and wheeze through an hour and a half long episode? <laughs> um so yeah, if people have any sort of feedback on the length of our show or I guess just anything about our show in general, please let us know. It doesn't always have to be just about the topics that we discuss, but we like, you know, we'll try to improve our show in the areas that we can and, uh, you know, and, and make changes to accommodate the audience, assuming it's sort of in line with our our overall vision for what we want this show to be. But and we try to get the facts right most of the time, but I'm sure there are many, many things where we're wrong. So if you, if you hear us say something that's completely wrong, feel free to send in corrections too. I think that that's, uh, that's valuable and it could be fun. Just don't be a dick about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you're, you're, you're buying my style, bro. <laughs> that's probably a good place for us to jump into actually getting to some feedback. If you have any questions or comments about the topics we're discussing today, or in any of our previous episodes, you can always send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also, future topics. Send those along. Uh, I don't know what you want to call this. You you kind of had like a, a conversation with somebody on Twitter, right? Is that what this is? Oh, yeah. So um, I recently started following a, uh, a game developer based out of Melbourne, Australia. 
a woman by the name of Jennifer Sherl. She goes by at Gaomi on Twitter. That's G-A-O-H-M-E-E. She's very vocal on Twitter about elements of game design, which as someone who does a podcast on the, the subject, I thought was pretty interesting. So I've, I've been following her. But she recently, with all of this news about um, Shadow of War and Battlefront 2 and all these like games coming out with loot boxes, posted a really good thread on her thoughts on loot boxes. And uh, we covered loot boxes a few episodes ago, but I felt that we had sort of failed to address a perspective that she was bringing up, which was her perspective as a developer on on the subject. So I reached out to her and asked if I could mention her thread on our show. And she said, yeah, sure. So I'll go ahead and read what she's written. And I've kind of cut this down to sort of make it fit in our show. It's it's actually much longer than what I'm going to read here. But I encourage anyone, if, if, if you like what we do on this show, uh, go give her a follow because she, she discusses a lot of the same things we do. Um, she's very vocal. Uh, she has very strong opinions and she communicates them really well. But this is what she had to say. She said, monetization concepts of pretty much any product in any industry change over time with technology, opportunity, and specific markets. For games, these concepts move with trends, available resources, platforms, payment methods, time investment, consumer preferences. Now, whenever new disruptive ideas come around in a market, people try out new things and see if it works for different products. In a world where indie devs try to survive, where making games is competitive and very expensive, new models can keep devs going. I agree in thus far with the criticism that not every game concept fits well with every monetization concept. It may just not work. What gets me, though, is how folks run around harassing devs for trying to make a fucking living. You can't be serious about that. Come on. I guarantee you one thing. Almost none of us get rich from this stuff. We barely earn a proper salary in most places in the world. Investment is still incredibly difficult to get because games are still such a gamble for return on investment. That's the truth. In many players' heads, these concepts are to make us rich. In reality, they exist to make us afford basic living conditions. So I thought this was interesting because there's there's been a lot of talk going around online about loot boxes' place in game design. There's sort of the common defense of loot boxes in video games saying like, you know, video games have never never gone up in price, so developers have to find other ways to, to generate money since they can't raise the price on their game. But I, th- I think that we in our last episode sort of failed to bring up this idea that, yeah, video games, they're a risk. You know, th- there's people making these games and not everyone that's making these games is rolling in a Bentley living in the hills. You know, not everyone is notch, that there are a lot of people who are just are hardworking, who are putting in 60, 80 hour weeks, especially when it's getting around crunch time on games that that are just trying to put food on the table, and especially in the indie dev space. So I, I wanted to make sure that we sort of gave time to this perspective as well and and not have it just be sort of like the way that I, at least I feel I personally came across in that episode, which was like almost universally negative against loot boxes. I agree with her in, in what she's saying is that, yes, of course, no one's making it rich. It's It's a very risky investment to invest into a video game's development. I think our main complaint was usually AAA games reaching overreaching to points where they take things out of the game uh, or make the design the game in such a way that you can't progress without you can't progress in a meaningful way without buying loot boxes. I think a lot of people the most recent example is in Battlefront 2, the the beta 
had these you couldn't buy them yet but they are introducing expendable cards that you play in a match and then they're gone forever and if you don't engage with the loot box system or the microtransaction system uh, it becomes very grindy to make any meaningful progress uh, towards getting new gear and stuff like that it directly affects how good your your stuff is in the game versus other systems like player unknowns battlegrounds you don't have like all that stuff so far has been just cosmetic and i think that making that optional is is the way to do it but i understand that sometimes this conversation gets lumped in together where people are just hating on loot boxes altogether so i totally agree with with what she's saying recently the voice actors uh, uh, video games went on strike and finally came to an agreement where certain guidelines have been set out for voice actors in video games. And that's great. Like they, they, they have SAG after backing them on that. Uh, they've been working very hard and to see that they, they're now getting the protections that screen actors get is, is, is great. But on the flip side of that, you have developers who don't have any representation right now. And there's a thing in technology and uh, video game design called crunch time, usually towards, you know, the, the final stretch of development of, of whatever software you're making. And people are putting in 80 hour weeks and that's they're not being able to see their families and they're getting sick because they don't have time to sleep. And uh, there's there's a problem in the culture of some of this stuff that needs to be addressed. And I don't know that loot boxes are the end all be all of that because... I don't know how much of that money developers doing the work actually get to see. Yeah, that's always that's always you know, especially when it's a AAA studio uh, or a, at least a AAA publisher that's implementing loot boxes. You kind of wonder how much of that does trickle down to the people actually putting in the the long hours on that kind of stuff. Again, I, you know, I think it's real easy to sort of slip into that worst case scenario mentality where I think in a lot of cases, you know, it, it might be better to give some of these people the benefit of the doubt and then be proven wrong than to just think like the worst up front. There's a very simple solution to a lot of this and it's just don't buy the loot boxes you don't want to buy. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if people vote with their wallet, I mean, video games are not going to go away, right? Like as an industry, it'll be there. If we say collectively, Loot boxes is not the way that we feel comfortable giving you our money. Video game developers and publishers will find a new way to do it and maybe a better way, maybe a way that, you know, enhances the game rather than pulls parts out of it and then makes you pay for them. Again, I'm trying not to I'm trying not to slip into that mindset. It's really hard for me. I mean, people were really like upset when the they fear. when they started looking at Shadow of War's loot box system, but the game is out now and from everything I've heard, yes, it's egregious in the way that they lump it into like every menu in the game. Like, hey, you could skip this. Or you could get more loot by paying for coins. Um, no one I have heard talk about the game has say that you need to interact with that system to get loot. They have more than enough loot to get through the game. Um, I know other people are saying some of the late game stuff in that where you're managing like your fortresses and stuff get super grindy if you don't pay for their loot boxes. But... I, I don't think that you need yeah. to engage with that necessarily if if you are just looking to play through the end of the game. If you want to continue being like the best on the leaderboards, maybe. I don't know. It's But I don't think that's like the main draw of that game. I think people are getting by just fine by not even 
participating in that system. Yeah. And, you know, I typically don't engage with loot boxes in, in most of the games that I play. And it's not because I don't want the, you know, it's not because I want developers sleeping on the streets and eating out of trash cans. My hope is that, you know, they that people will find more creative ways to ways to make me feel like to have fun spending my money. I guess that's sort of like the end goal, right? Is to make it feel rewarding and satisfying when I, you know, when I put in my credit card number that I'm getting something that's worthwhile. I guess, yeah, I guess that's, that's, that's the end of my thought. I just, we've sort of spent a a little bit more time on this than uh, I kind of wanted to, but I think there's a lot here to unpack and we'll probably be revisiting this topic again in the future because I think as more games start to do this, we'll, we'll be seeing more opportunities to discuss it. But I just wanted to thank Jennifer again for sharing her thoughts online and letting me bring them up here on the show. I'm hoping to get her on the show. We'll see if, that, if, I, if I can make that happen. Our next piece of feedback comes from Cam in Australia. He has uh, written to us a couple of times. Thank you for writing in, Cam. He replied to us in our discussion um, about digital distribution. And I had brought up, I think, how usually di- digital distribution can, can help lower the price of games. Like Steam sales, games go on sale like a month after they come out sometimes. Uh, But he responded to say that uh, the Nintendo does the opposite with digital in Australia. Uh, The first party eShop game, he's saying it's 90 Australian dollars digitally and 70 retail. So you're paying you're paying over $20 additional to buy it digitally. Uh, It doesn't really make too much sense. He says it's anti-consumer. And my only line of logic could be that they're trying to stop retailers getting pissy through undercutting them. And I think we did kind of touch on that a little bit. We game did. We did touch on it. Companies like GameStop and stuff, they they have deals with distributors saying like, hey, like if you're going to undercut us, we're not going to carry your game anymore. Um, exactly. And that's an issue because they're just they're trying to stay afloat in a changing market. And I understand that, but uh, twenty dollars difference is a, a big deal. And I know Australia kind of they, they get the brunt of some of this stuff for some reason. I had intended to do a little research into you know why this is in Australia because in the United States it is the price essentially is is one to one the online price versus the retail price at least in almost all cases that I can think of if it's sixty dollars at the store it's sixty dollars online and then you know sometime down the road they they may do sales either on the physical copy or the digital copy I think um, it has to do with like certain like but. import laws with the way different countries handle taxing stuff and when it comes to digital distribution that stuff is kind of in a unlegislated area where it's like you're not really importing a physical product but they still want to make a cut on that and they're not i don't think as the laws exist right now and a lot of these countries really um take into account things like digital distribution for software so i don't know maybe, maybe it's a thing that could change in the future i i am not an economist so i don't really know understand why that stuff works the way it does right now thank you cam for sending that in and if i do actually get some opportunity to to look into that I'll, I'll bring it up in a future episode and see if we can unpack the mystery of why the au gets shafted on their uh <laughs> on their online pricing um are we good did we did we do it all jared i think so yeah i mean if people made it this far thanks for letting us uh just talk about the show a little bit all right well that's gonna do it for this episode as a reminder we release new episodes every two weeks be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I am at Jared Bruner on Twitter. 
We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right, I'll catch you later, Jared. Thanks, man.